Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must Do me at every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you, dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I think of these words that we've just sung in this song of, of, of your sovereignty, that you are God over all, and yet also in these words we sing about the nearness to which you've drawn yourself to us, that you are closer than a brother, that you pursue us, that you are the faithful one, Father, when we are so often faithless. And so, Father, we turn to you this morning, and we ask that you would... Uh, Be gracious to us 
in the pouring out of your spirit as we, as we together uh, read from your word and submit ourselves to its authority. Father, as we read of this patriarch Abraham, Father, that you would teach us many good things uh, from his life, uh, that you would show us uh, the character of man and, Father, your own gracious, loving, kind character, that, Lord, we may praise you all the more for who you are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Martin Luther, the German reformer, obviously wrote and said many things, but one thing that he wrote down in Latin was this uh, little phrase, simul justus et peccator, which all you Latin scholars, of course, know means simultaneously justified and sinner. And this understanding is really key to the Christian life. It is a principle that is prevalent throughout Scripture. No human is free of the lifelong struggle against the indwelling, ongoing presence of sin. Any Christian who believes otherwise from Scripture is in error, is wrong. By faith, In Jesus Christ, we are free from the guilt of sin, set free from that overarching reign of sin, but not yet delivered from the ongoing, internal, insistent, powerful presence of sin. And I think we can all attest to that. As we continue in this life of Abraham from the book of Genesis... We remember what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about uh, our forefathers, about the patriarchs, writing, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Abraham, the Uh, The father of the faithful, one whose faith is to be imitated, but also one of flesh and blood, one who still battles with sin like us. And in chapter 20, we see the embarrassment and failure of Abraham yet again. Feels like this pattern just continues to repeat. And we can stand there with our arms crossed and think, Abraham should know better. He should know better. Well, he did know better. And yet he still failed. So there is much for us as believers who stumble and fall that we can learn from God's dealings with Abraham in the story of failure of Abraham's faith but also, and more importantly, the story about the faithfulness of Abraham's God. That is where this passage points us this morning. Now, we might fail more or less than our our neighbor, our fellow believer who may be sitting near us, but at the end of the day, we are all, in a sense, failures as Christians because there is not one of us who can stand and claim superiority. We can even fail in the same area multiple times. It is only because of the glorious faithfulness 
of our God. That Abraham and Sarah and their future are left standing in faith at the end of this chapter. It's also an embarrassing, disastrous failure in faith that is an encouragement to us. To those of us who who recognize our spiritual frailty and fear, it points us to absolute faithfulness, the absolute faithfulness of God that we can trust Him to see us through. This episode is an embarrassment of failure of faith. Why? Because this is the man who we've read about for weeks now who's received the glorious promise of God. He's seen the fulfillment of the blessing. He's seen the integrity of God everywhere. Everywhere he's gone, he's seen this and experienced this. And despite all of the advantages that that surrounded his life, when when the difficult time came, he crumbled He went from a a rock and a foundation to dust. This is also, as we said, not the first time that Abraham has failed. In fact, you remember, if you go back to Genesis 12, he did the exact same thing in Egypt. In fact, it's so unbelievable that some people actually think that this is the same story repeated with uh, some nuanced differences because they can't believe that Abraham would have made the same mistake twice in a row. My goodness, he's far too noble for that. Well, no, he's a reflection of human nature and human character. And that's the reality is that we are all serial sinners. And here we see again the great father of the faith, Broken down because he employs the same strategic, uh, same strategies that he had before. He repeats the same things, thinking that uh, maybe a different outcome will come of this. But he's in a different location and he's in a different setting. And those same pressures have have come upon him and his family. But again, he's in a new place. And instead of learning the lessons, you know, the the new situations are new opportunities for him to witness of of the goodness of God, of, of the faithfulness of God. But it's also a new likelihood that I will cave in the same way as I have before. Instead of rooting his life in the faithfulness of God, Abraham repeats the disaster of that embarrassing failure from Genesis chapter 12. Now this kind of spiritual failure, it's it's never one-dimensional. It's never one-dimensional. As much as we would love our failure to be one-dimensional, we would love that to be our situation in our lives, wouldn't we? You know, it'll only affect me. It won't affect anyone else. Or it might affect one other person. And I'm sure that Abraham probably figured, okay, this will affect me and maybe Sarah, possibly Abimelech. But the failure of faith has multi-dimensional characteristics. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Here is the first for Abraham. He fails as a servant with respect to the word God spoke to him. 
In Genesis chapter 15, what does God tell Abraham? He's, he's promised blessings in Abraham's life. He says to Abraham, Fear not, I am your shield, Abraham. Future blessings, present defense. In other words, he's saying, Abraham, I am your shield. You can hide behind me. You can rest in me. You can trust in me. And why did Abraham fail in this? Well, we read in chapter 20, verse 11, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. As it turns out, there was more fear of God in the people of Gerar than in Abraham himself. As soon as the king tells his people about the dream that he's just had, they were very much afraid, is what the text says. And the pagans are showing Abraham what a right response to God looks like, what a fear of God looks like. Not the other way around. Let's put this in a modern context. Uh, a friend of mine was spending time with uh, some of his work colleagues, and he was making an effort to be like them. And so he was using language that he wouldn't ordinarily use, and I don't mean Spanish. <clears throat> and then in this ongoing process, he, he took the Lord's name in vain. And it was one of his non-believing work colleagues who said, Whoa, aren't you not supposed to do that? Isn't that a big deal for you to, to, to say something like that? Conviction on conviction. My friend said he was gutted. He was cut to the heart. He was shown truth by a person on the outside who had only heard about this. And, and, and had to show it to him and say, isn't this, isn't this actually what you believe? And the reality set in in his life. He, he had to be shown from someone on the outside. Abraham failed to trust that in every and any situation, God was big enough to help him. Notice, Abraham, is a, he's a giant in the faith. He, he has done Absolutely extraordinary things. He is held in Scripture as the man who gave glory to God. God had given this big promise to him, and Abraham has his eye on that promise. The problem with Abraham is not about the big picture. The problem with Abraham is in the minutia. It's in the, it's in the details. It's, it's in the, 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 the personal contact, the, the, the detailed parts of his life. You know the expression, the devil is in the details. Well, it's true. Think of our own situations. We can be abundantly aware that there are many in the world who are lost, and, and they are heading to a Christless eternity. And we can pray for the lost as a, as a, as a lump sum group. We can grieve people as a whole who, who don't know Christ yet. 
But when do we think of the lost as, as individual people with, with names and faces and, and, and pray for those individuals who are lost? I know my own personal reflection, I tend to side greater on the latter than the former. I, I tend to think of it as a group, as a sum, and I even use it in conversation. I talk about it as a group, but they're individuals, they're people, they're my neighbors, they're even friends, they're, they're, there's so many people that I know. And, and while we do have those prayers, of course, oftentimes we think of it as a, as a group sum. We believe in the providence of God as another example. We, we, we believe in the providence of God as this overarching narrative. But when we consider the, those specific implications in our daily lives, we tend to think about them a little differently. When God's providences are, are, are painful and dark for us, as one theologian writes, it is then that God is to be trusted, that he is present when he is most invisible. We believe the promise of God that he is with us, but we, how we behave in the details, sometimes we behave as though he were absent from us. Not only is this a Failure for Abraham vertically as a servant in relation to God. But this is also a horizontal failure as a husband to his wife. Abraham is not the only responsible party in this passage. Because both Abraham and Sarah had agreed that this is the process with which we will go through this when we go into foreign lands. Now, in another context, we could have discussed uh, uh, Sarah's what Sarah's response should have been. Uh, how do you respond as a wife who has a believing husband when that believing husband is doing something that is less than what God clearly desires for that husband? In this case, Sarah apparently allows it. She followed along with it. She went along with the plan. But the issue is with Abraham that this passage is concerned. Called to care for his wife. He wasn't concerned about his own safety. He's just concerned about the safety of his wife's husband. <laughs> and he's more so concerned with the safety of his wife's husband than her own integrity. Listen, if he was scared of what people would do to them, do to her, do to him when he was in Egypt, then he should have never been in Egypt back in chapter 12. If he is scared about what will happen to him in Gerar with himself, with his wife, he should never have been there. You notice the text never says why he went to this area. He, he should never have gone unless he was absolutely dead set that this, this journey will be handled with integrity. That we're going here, I know that these things will likely happen, but I'm going to handle this with integrity, and I'm going to trust that God is my shield. 
Instead, we read these sad words in verse 13. Called as a husband to care for her, he puts his own safety before her integrity. Called as a husband to love her, instead he manipulates her. I said to her, this is essentially, this is how you can love me. Show your love for me. A a, a statement I am sure has ruined many marriages. If you really loved me, you would do this. How many people I have talked to who, who, who look at their marriages in this same way, f- forcing the spouse to prove their love by demanding something of them. Well, unfortunately, the scripture says love is patient. Love is kind. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. That's what love is. This other definition is not love. This is, this is a false definition of love. It, it does not look for self-preservation at the expense of the lover. And the amazing thing is Abraham cannot even see it himself. If you really love me, you would say that you're my sister. If you, you would show me this kindness. We want to say to Abraham, if you really loved your wife... You would do whatever it takes to protect her, to to protect her integrity. Fascinating, isn't it, that Abraham is this this pillar of faith, a man whose life is is generally focused on, on giving glory to God. Abraham grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. And yet, do you see where the critical tests came in his life? They are all within the the realm of the family circle. The test over Lot. The test he will face later on, whether, uh, whether or not he is going to be willing to offer as sacrifice the son that was promised. And it's fascinating that in those two cases, he passes those tests with flying colors. His attitude towards Lot is exemplary. His attitude towards God's word when it came to offering up Isaac was unbelievable. But it is in these key areas of his life, both when Sarah says, "Uh, uh, the promise isn't coming through me, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to try with Hagar. And now here, the man just seems to to crumble into dust in this most basic relationship of life. And it should not surprise us because this is what happened in the Garden of Eden. It's rinse and repeat. God has given this gracious gift of, of intimate relationship, intimate friendship through marriage, an apex of, of, of God's good gifts to us. And it shouldn't surprise us that this institution, this creation of God is what Satan seeks to destroy. That was the second dimension of Abraham's failure, failed as a servant with the word of God that was spoken, and he's, a, he's failed as a husband to his wife that God had given him. And thirdly, the failure as a witness to what God 
called him to. Now turn this picture around for a moment in your minds. Here is a pagan king. Abraham and Sarah arrive with all of their people and all of their things. And, and, and this king says, who are you? What are you doing here? Who is she? What a fantastic opportunity to say, to tell the story of their lives. I was in the middle of nowhere. I was in Ur of the Chaldeans. And this God came and revealed himself to me and, and called me out. And, and everywhere I have gone, I have been a blessing to the people who have blessed me. And, and, and he's watched over me and he's given these promises and, and, and I'm seeing them coming to fulfillment. And, and, and time and time again, he's been teaching me of who he is and revealing himself to me. And it's been unbelievable. You, you, you must know this God. And he's the God of the universe. And he's going to draw all the nations to himself through me, through my line, through my seed. That'd be a story worth at least listening to. But instead of speaking of the faithfulness of God, they hide him. They decide that Abimelech and his kingdom are not worthy of knowing God or are so reprobate that giving testimony would, would do them no good. So they get to make that decision. And in Abraham's case... This is all the more tragic and embarrassing because written into the original promise that God gave to Abraham was, I will make you and your seed a blessing to the nations. And now you're in one. And you see what happens. Instead of becoming a blessing to this little kingdom, Abraham becomes a curse. He becomes a curse to them, called to bear witness to God and his grace. Uh, do you notice that God actually tells Abimelech, Abraham is a prophet. A, a, a prophet. Abraham's task in his life is to represent God to the people, to the world, to tell of his mighty deeds, to, to speak of his goodness and his power and his love and his faithfulness to, to testify to what he has done in his life and in his family. Instead, he is silent. Like Jonah, the pagan sailors are pleading with God while the storm rages on and Jonah is asleep in the hull of the ship and he is Prayerless. And then they interrogate him and they say, they, the, the one question that he will not answer is, what do you do? <laughs> what is your job? He can't even tell them. If Abimelech had asked Abraham, what do you do? What would he have said? How do you respond to that? I'm called of God to, to, to witness to him, to, to speak of his deeds and, and his words and his works in my life. And then you think of the poignancy of the name Abimelech, Abi, my father, Melech, king. The king is my father. Abimelech's very name was the task to which Abraham was called. To witness to the true father. 
that he is the true king. And he is going to be the father of an untold number of, of people, of believers who are brought into his family, but instead he failed. Because he failed to trust the Lord in the details. It's one thing to look back after an event, after an episode in our lives and say, oh, there's the providence of God. You know, now we see it. It's altogether different to face whatever obstacle, whatever challenge, no matter how fearful, no matter how uh, frightening, and say, I trust you in the details. I trust you as my shield. Though this mountain rise before me, though the, the valley be low and deep, still I will trust you. Forbid it, Lord, that I would hide behind my intelligence. Forbid it, Lord, that I would hide behind my financial position. Forbid it, Lord, that I would try to hide behind anything except for you, my shield, my fortress. Well, everything would have been lost because of the faithlessness of Abraham had it not been for the amazing faithfulness of God. And just as there are three dimensions to Abraham's failure of faith, there are three expressions of God's sovereign and gracious faithfulness to Abraham. First, he, in the way that he delivers his erring children. Though Sarah is not innocent in this, but look at how God, look at what God did. Abraham couldn't say, you know, uh, Abimelech, if you'll turn to uh, Genesis chapter 12 and following, um, you, can, you can see kind of the arc of where we've been in our lives. There's, there's no, he can't look at Scripture. The only thing Abimelech has is the general revelation of God. Creation, created order. He knows nothing of the promise to Abraham. He, he has no idea about the calling and the, and the setting forth and, and the promise of a, of a land and a, and a people and a seed. And yet God comes to this pagan king in the form of a dream that leads the king to prayer. Oh, God, have mercy on us. And at the end of the story, we are told that God had done something here. There, there was a sickness uh, in the land. There, there, there was uh, uh, one of the aspects of sickness was that it prevented Abimelech from being able to have Sarah. In God's providence, he protects the integrity of Sarah. It's an unbelievable thought that God would use sickness as a preventative, as a way of protection. We always look at sickness as the worst thing ever that could happen. God, why? Why are you allowing this? Could it be that he has a sovereign purpose in this. This is what we talked about earlier. Do, do we look at it and look at everything is terrible and, and wait till the storms have passed and then see the ark and say, oh, look at how God has done this. I mean, how many times does he have to do this in our life before we can face something and say, I'm trusting in you. You're doing something. I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. But if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be you. 
He certainly delivers his erring children. Two, he protects the integrity of Abraham's son. Remember last week we saw that God promised that he would visit about this time next year and, and Sarah would give birth to a son. Well, what happens if Abimelech takes Sarah and then she has a son? Who, who's going to believe the promises of God? Sure, Abraham, that's your child. Yeah. Or could it be the king? You've gone all these years without being able to have one. She gets taken by this foreign king, and all of a sudden she has a son. So he intervenes in this way, not, not, not just to protect Abraham and Sarah, but it's also because he is focused on the promise, and he will not let it go. He, he's committed to safeguarding the child of promise. He will not let the promise fall to the ground, no matter how things appear. He, he passed through the, the, the split carcasses of the animals as a way of saying, I will cease to exist rather than not keep my promises. He delivers his erring children. He protects the genuineness of the promised son. Finally, in God's gracious kindness, he actually shows Abraham a fulfillment of his promise. Remember when he said to, to Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Here comes Abimelech, and instead of cursing Abraham, which he had every right to do, you've brought nothing but problems since you've been here, you've lied to me, you know, I have every reason to kick you out and treat you poorly. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he blesses Abraham. And he tells Sarah, you leave with innocence and are vindicated. Here in Abimelech's case, Abraham brings cursing upon him and his people, but he, Abimelech, the pagan king responds with blessing and is in turn blessed. Can you imagine this scene and, and what's taking place here? They're now leaving, Sarah and Abraham are leaving this, this absolute disastrous episode with more blessing, with more money, with more servants. If Sarah was laughing at the thought of God giving them a child in their late age out of faithlessness, what is she doing after this event? You just picture her walking down the street with Abraham saying, look at what God has done for us. Despite our stupidity, despite our total lack of faith, he's proven yet again his faithfulness to his promises. And now they look ahead to the greatest fulfillment in the birth of Isaac and the greatest test, the challenge to sacrifice him. I would imagine if we took all of our failures, all of our times of, of, of faithlessness in, in, in these three categories, faithlessness to God's word, faithlessness to those near and dear to us, our spouses, our families, faithlessness in, in our witness. 
and we were to stack them up against our successes, I think it would be drastically disproportionate. You might say, no, well, actually, my successes would be a little bit higher. Well, then you can go ahead and add one to your failures because you've just lied to yourself and us. Drastically disproportionate. This is why karma is such a bad deal. You think of that interview with Bono, and there was this uh, French um, music uh, article writer. I said, uh, Bono, you believe in karma, right? I'm paraphrasing this because I don't speak Irish. But uh, he said, nah, mate, nah. Nah, that'd be terrible. I'd, I'd be going straight to hell. I'd be destroyed. I have to believe in something. He said, oh, my bad completely outweighs anything good I've done. I have to believe in a Savior who saved me from death and, 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 and my terrible, stupid mistakes. <laughs> and then he shared the gospel with this guy who'd never heard the gospel before. Unbelievable. But you see, that's the beauty of the gospel. That Christ takes all of these failures up. All of that faithlessness in us. In all those dimensions of failure and faithlessness that we have in our lives. And he puts them upon himself on the cross. And he bears the just punishment that we deserve in all of that. And he gives us multidimensional grace and salvation. And so now we're going to celebrate that very event together as people, by God's grace, who see and recognize the exchange that took place on that day. So as we pray together, hear these words all glory to you, our Heavenly Father, for in your tender mercy you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death on the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, and who instituted and in his holy gospel commanded us to continue a perpetual memory of his precious death until his coming again. Hear us, merciful Father, and grant that we who receive these gifts of your creation, this bread and this wine, according to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood, who on the night he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given you thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given you thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. Amen. He did this, and he covered the sin of Abraham, and he covered the sin of all the saints before and after. Let us celebrate this Lord's table together. redeemed my soul from the pit of emptiness you have redeemed my soul from death